Let's turn in our Bibles now to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. I think that was a fitting song for where this sermon will go. We're going to look at the first four verses this morning of Romans 7 after last week doing a little bit of a introduction to the chapter. Remembering, of course, that this is a chapter about the law and the believer's relationship to it and how we have now been, through Christ, released from the law so that we can belong to Christ. And we learn in the gospel that the way of the law is not the way to life. It is the way of Christ that is the way to life. And you must choose whether you will have the law as the one that you are bound to and keep in order to get right with God and then stay right with God, or if it will be Christ. If you choose law, then you are sunk because you cannot keep it, not in its entirety. The law is not the way to get right with God or to stay right with God. Jesus is the way. I want us to read the first four verses, and that's going to be our text for this morning. Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, these are the very words of God. And let's pause now and pray and ask God's blessing on this passage. Father, now as we looked at earlier from 1 Peter chapter 4, I am going to speak and need to speak as the oracles of God. And so I need your gifting to do that. I need the Spirit to empower me and gift me to speak your word and be faithful to this passage and what it says and what it means and how it applies. So please help me with that. I want to do that in the strength that you supply so that in everything you're glorified. In addition, 
We need the Spirit's help. All of us here need the Spirit's help in understanding this passage and how it applies to our lives and seeing the glory of Christ in it and the beauty of the new covenant relationship and the possibility now of bearing fruit for you through our connection to Jesus, all of those things. So I pray that you would help me now and guide me as we look through this. And I ask it in the name of Jesus, amen. Now, I want to draw your attention to something that's important. The first 13 verses, roughly, of chapter 7 is an explanation of something Paul said back in chapter 6. And I want to draw your attention to that. That's in chapter 6, and it's in verse 14. He made what was and would have been, and if we understand it still appropriately now, a very controversial statement that would have drew the attention of anybody who knew the law. And remember what we just read in chapter 7, verse 1. I'm speaking to you who know the law. So if they knew the law in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, that would have drew their attention and would have been fairly controversial and demanded some explanation about what he means, okay? And he's going to explain that in verses 1 through 13, chapter 7. But if you look at verse 14, here's the statement. Chapter 6, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace, okay? Now, the first part of that statement, for sin will have no dominion over you, Paul is explaining in chapter 6 that sin isn't going to have dominion over us for one reason, and this reason simply is this, that when Christ died, he died for your sin and to sin, and when he died, you died with him. Remember, we, we learned this. And when he rose, you rose with him now. And so you are dead to sin, and the power of sin in your life is broken, and though you were a slave of sin, you are no longer a slave to sin. So part of being under grace through the cross means you don't have to obey sin's uh, desires in you anymore. You now can obey God, see yourself that way. But what's interesting, and what he doesn't explain in chapter 6, he waits till this next chapter to do it, is that last phrase. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace, implying that if you were under law, you would be a slave of sin. Which placed all of Paul's former pharisaical comrades, so to speak, who were under the law, indicted them as slaves to sin. Sin will reign over you because you are under law, 
almost makes the law sound as though it's a bad thing. And that the law itself is problematic, leading to sin. And make no mistake, that's exactly what he's saying. Apart from the, apart from the Spirit of God, the law is very problematic for sinners and actually leads to more sin. Now, he's going to explain what he means by that in the first 13 verses of chapter 7. But note this, that the law, apart from Christ and the Spirit, cannot save you. The law brings death to you. The law brings condemnation to you apart from Christ and His Spirit. It is Jesus that saves you and brings life to you. It is His Spirit that enables you to keep the law in a way that glorifies God. But the law, apart from Christ and the Spirit, is a problem, any kind of law. When the law is used as a means by which someone wants to get right with God or stay right with God, it's a problem. The law brings condemnation and death because we are sinners. That's what Paul will explain In those 13 verses, he's explaining what he means by sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law and under grace. So back in chapter 7 then, he's explaining the believer's relationship now to the law and how we should view our relationship to the law and he will explain why the law, apart from Christ and his spirit, is very problematic for sinners and how it cannot save, how it is not the way we must follow. Now you'll remember last week, we made it clear we wanted to start with something the text doesn't even teach necessarily and that is that the law is good, right? We want to make it clear that the law is good, that the law still stands, that we don't rip it out of our Bibles, that we don't unhitch from it. We showed that from other passages and things that Paul had said and other people said to show that the law still stands, but there is a way in which we are not under it. There is a way in which we've been released from it, and that is good news. It's all part of the gospel, okay? But we don't want to become people who view the law negatively. We had a man that used to attend our church, and he was really into hyper-grace teachers. And he caught on to one of these hyper-grace teachers that used the term antinomian. He said, I'm an antinomian which historically in the church was heretical, by the way, and would get you uh, excommunicated. Antinomian means, most literally, I'm against the law. The law is no barrier. So he used to tell people, I'm antinomian, I'm antinomian. I praise God that man is gone. We are not antinomian. We do not view the law negatively. We view it like Paul did. Look at chapter 7, verse 12. 
So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Look at verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, when I sin and violate the law, I agree with the law that it's good. I don't say the problem is with the law or God's too strict or whatever it is. The law is good. I'm the problem. And then finally, remember this one in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Far from not liking it or being antinomian, I I delight in it, which, by the way, is, again, evidence that the Spirit of God has worked in somebody when they see God's righteousness as good and they want it in their life. That means God's worked in that person. He's done that new covenant work where he actually wrote the law on their hearts so that from their heart there is delight now in his truth, right? We learned that we do not need to be afraid of the law because we're justified in Christ. That was the first five chapters. The law can't condemn you anymore, right? You are not under its condemnation. Back in chapter 4, we celebrated the fact that our lawless deeds are forgiven and our sins are covered and the Lord is not going to hold against us, count our sin against us because of what Christ has done. I thought it was very important last week to just begin with the proper perspective of the law before we dive into the details of this passage so we don't get the wrong idea because many have gotten the wrong idea when it comes to being released from the law and not being under the law. But what does it mean that we are not under law and what is our relationship to the law? Well, look first in verse 1 at this question Paul poses here. He said, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now, I think most of us in this room who are familiar with our Bibles and we're familiar with Old Testament history, we're pretty familiar with what Paul is referring to here as law. We talked about that last week. The law came to the nation of Israel through Moses in that 40-year time period where they were in the wilderness right after God delivered them out of slavery to Egypt and right before God brought them into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. So in that time period is when they were given the law. Uh, And by that, I mean two uses of that word law. They were given the first five books of Moses the entire Torah, Genesis, uh, through Deuteronomy. That was delivered to them in, the, in the, that time period. And then the real heart of the law, which was written on two stone tablets, really the core of what we call the Old Covenant. And those were the Ten Words, or we know them as the Ten Commandments. Moses went up on Mount Sinai, received the law, written on tablets of stone, were told by the very finger of God, meaning that these weren't something that Moses went up there and dreamt up on his own. They come from God. They were the core of the covenant that the people were to keep with God, and he comes down and he presents them to the people. That is the old covenant and the law. 
And the people of Israel were under the law. They were under the law in their whole history. They were obligated, covenant obligation now, to keep God's laws. And did you know, I have been told, though I never took the time to count it, and I never will, that within that Torah, there are, about, there are over 600 commands and precepts and laws. Can you imagine that? 600, all types of ceremonial and civil and societal laws and all sorts of things to do and not to do and types of clothing to wear and not to wear and what seeds you can plant in your field and what ones you can't and what you do if you hurt somebody else's uh, animal and you know what you can do with your beard and what you can't do with your beard, all sorts of things that you can imagine in addition to moral laws and ceremonial laws and certain days and seasons that they were to observe every year. They were under that law. Now, let me make it clear that God didn't give the law at any time as a means for any of those sinful Israelites to get right with him. Paul made that clear. Remember back in chapter 4? Even Abraham was justified by faith, and so was Moses, saved by grace through faith, and so was Joshua, and so was David, and every other New Testament true believer. But they were under the, what we call the Old Covenant and under law. Matter of fact, Jesus himself, born a Jew, we are told, was born under law. Did you know that? Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. So, as Jesus was born into this world, he was born under obligation to the Mosaic law. The law was demanding and exacting. By that I meant demanding there was a lot to do and a lot to know and a lot to obey. It was exacting, and by that I mean when it was violated, there were penalties. One violation of the law is, means you violated the whole thing, James tells us later. It was both demanding and exacting, and it demanded penalty. That's why within the law itself, there's built into it a sacrificial system by which, through faith, sins could be forgiven. The biggest one was Yom Kippur. That's Hebrew for the Day of Atonement. Jews celebrate it to this day where once a year the high priest would offer a sacrifice that was sufficient now to cover the sins of the people. 
And those who saw it as that, as faith, and were looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice that God would ultimately send, and thereby faith looking at that would receive forgiveness of sins. But the law was exacting and demanding. It demanded then that there be some sort of system of forgiveness within it, which by the way also shows us what God is clearly showing us is that your relation, right relationship to him would never be by keeping the law. It was always gonna be through a sacrifice, right? And so we know that that sacrifice has come and that perfect sacrifice is there and his name is Jesus and he died for our sins because as the author of the Hebrews said, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. That's ridiculous. It's what they were pointing to. But at any rate, this is the law in which they were born under. And do you remember Last week, we read from Acts chapter 15, those of you who were there, that Jerusalem council. They were having a problem because in Antioch, those Gentiles were being saved. They didn't know Torah. They didn't know the Mosaic law. They would never been born under covenant law. They were getting saved, hearing the name of Jesus, spirits being poured out. These people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And There were Judaizers that came to them and said, now you must be circumcised, which was a part of their law. And they said, you need to also come under now the rest of the Mosaic law and all of these things that we've been living under. There was a big debate. Remember at the church? And Peter stands up and he said these words in Acts 15. He says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Listen to this that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will, you see. Which, by the way, I think it is, it's strange that there are professing Christians now, um, what do they call themselves, messianic Christians, other kinds of Christians that they believe now as Christians, even as Gentiles, we come back under to some degree the Mosaic law. How silly is that? Peter would say, I wasn't able to bear it and neither were any of my forefathers able to bear it. So what in the world are you doing by putting God to the test and bringing Gentiles back under the law? It's almost hard for me to believe that we're still talking about this 2,000 years later when it was so very clearly settled 2,000 years ago and God gave us letters like the letter to the Galatians that just kind of wraps it up in case there was any further confusion, you see. But the law was extremely challenging and impossible for sinners to obey completely. Some of you came up in systems of Christianity that may have not been under the Mosaic law, but were certainly law-based, law-focused, legalistic. In some of those circles, They preach a gospel, they preach the gospel, 
But then you are brought under such restrictions about what a Christian does or doesn't do or should or shouldn't do or does wear or doesn't wear or how they wear their hair or the type of music they listen to and the list just goes on and on and on. That is a law-based structure. And friends, that is not the way that we are to live or the way that we are to go. When I went to seminary at 30 years old, I went to a seminary, and I don't want to bash it, but it is known for its rules and laws. They have rules for their rules. And then they made rules for those rules to make sure nobody crosses a boundary of those rules, you see many rules. I was a 30-year-old man. I had three kids and a mortgage. And I'll never forget the time I was standing before this 23-year-old dean of students getting demerits because I missed a class. And I'm thinking to myself, I paid for the class. I'll miss it if I want to. They believed that the more rules they could impose on these students, that's the way. It's not. And it doesn't work. And as a matter of fact, they would send non-Christian kids into these environments because it was all that their parents would pay for. And these non-Christian kids would go in there and it was like a pressure cooker. And those laws, actually, what we'll learn about in these upcoming weeks, were inciting them to violate those laws. It doesn't work. Legalistic structures, law-based Christianity doesn't work. It wasn't the way for Israel, and it didn't work for them, and it won't for the church. But in comes the gospel of Jesus. I mean the true, pure gospel of grace, and it changes everything. So Paul gives this illustration because he needs to make sure we understand first before he describes the problematic nature of the law as it mixes with our sin. Again, not that the law is a bad, but it's a problem for sinners. Before he explains that, he wants, you, he wants to be clear on what your relationship now is to the law and how you're to view it, okay? So then he gives this illustration in verse 2. He uses the illustration of marriage that would have been common to them and they would have understood it. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, this is common because we understand what marriage is. Man, even most of the world, when they get married and they're giving their vows in this covenant relationship of marriage, some kind of official is there officiating this and there's some witnesses. At the end, they'll always say something to this effect. I do this. I promise to do that. I promise to do this until what? Until death do we part. We understand, and that comes from Bible, by the way, a marriage is this permanently binding covenant relationship. Jesus talked about it because the Jews at his time were getting divorced for any 
nilly-willy reason that they wanted to, and so they came to Jesus to try to trip him up and see what he would say because everybody was debating divorce, and Jesus said, have you not read from the beginning? God had made him, made him male and female, put them together, the two should become one flesh, therefore what God has put together, let not man put asunder. Marriage is a covenant, binding relationship. If one of those, Paul uses the illustration of the wife, goes and is with another man, is living with another man, she's an adulteress, she'll be called one. As a matter of fact, it's a binding relationship. It's a covenant relationship they can't get out of. Now, he brings it to the point here. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So there's been a death here, and it's You're the one that's died. To the law from the body of Christ because what he's trying to show is you were bound covenantally to the law as long as you lived till death do you part. That's what he said in verse one. Just like in a marriage. But now, good news, you have died to the law. So just like in the marriage, you're released from the covenantal obligations to the law, you see. There's freedom there. That's why, this is why the, our Bible authors here of the ESV put it here, released from the law. You're no longer under the law in that way, in a covenant, binding, lifelong obligation to it because a death has occurred and now you are released from it. And you were released through the body of Christ. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying for your sins. We saw that in chapter 6 and to release you from the power and slavery of sin. And he was dying to release you from the law. This is why earlier I quoted from Galatians 4.4, Jesus was born under the law, but I didn't finish it then, to redeem those who were under the law. And he did that through the cross work. You are now released from the law when he, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. When he died, you died to the law. You need to know that. You may not feel like that, but you got to know it because it helps you see now your relationship to the law and there's no covenant relationship to the law, you see. There's actually going to be a new covenant relationship. It's important to understand then the liberating news of what Paul is teaching. You're under no covenant obligation to fulfill the law. You're not bound to it anymore. Like that. I hope that's good news for those of you who are just by nature legalistic. And you feel like you just never are doing enough. Never obeying enough. Never fulfilling enough. 
You're unsatisfied with your level of obedience, with your level of whatever it is. Your law, maybe it's your lowercase l law that you've created for yourself, or maybe it is the moral law of God. You're just never feeling enough. Friends, hear it. You're under no obligations to it. There's freedom in that. It's actually very liberating to experience that. And Jesus for you has fulfilled all the law, including the law's demand of penalty and death. He in his life was actively obedient under the law for you. He fulfilled it all for you, you see. And then when he went to the cross, he paid not for his own failings, but for your failings. Now you're released from the law, you see. Any covenant obligation to it. But you'll notice this in chapter 7, in verse 4, that you have died to the law through the body of Christ for this reason. Now look at this. So that you may belong to another. Just like a woman who was bound covenantally to her husband, but he dies, and now she's free to belong to another. In a new covenantal relationship. Friends, that's you now. You've died to the law so that you can belong to another. Who's the another that you belong to? Jesus. Isn't that clear? To him who has been raised from the dead. That's clearly Jesus. You are now in this covenantal relationship with Jesus that releases you from the law's demands because he fulfilled it entirely for you. Your husband, so to speak, took care of everything for you. Now you are under no legal obligations to it, to fulfill it, to get right with God or to stay right with God. Now again, is that gonna make us lawless people? We've covered that, right? No, not lawless people. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. Now that we're not bound to the law in that covenantal way, now that we've died to the law and been released from it and belong to Christ, what happens? Look at the end of verse 4. What's the result of this union with Christ? That we may bear fruit for God. When you are bound to the law, no fruit for God's being born. He'll go on to explain that. Your sin got in the way of everything. It bore fruit to death. It bore fruit to condemnation. Now, though, that we belong to Jesus Christ, we can finally begin bearing fruit for God, which means the key then for you, Christian, if you want to bear fruit for God in your life and be a fruitful Christian, Christian, you're not going to focus on the law. You're going to focus on Christ. This is not a law-based religion that we are in. It is a relational religion that we are in. It's based on and flows from the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Do you see that? So the key then to growing spiritually and and learning to grow in obedience and fulfilling the law of love in our lives is not to f- be law-focused, it's to be Christ-focused, you see. It's got to flow from 
him. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes we say things like, I'm not in a religion, I'm in a relationship. And I always got to think about that and say, well, it kind of depends what you mean. There's nothing wrong with religion. As a matter of fact, James said, there is a true and undefiled religion. It's beautiful. We've been religious this whole morning. Did you know that? God created you to be religious. It's wonderful. It all has core of worshiping him and serving him. You're a religious person. That's why we show up religiously at 10 a.m. every Sunday. And religiously, we read scriptures and go through a liturgy and we sing praise to God and we listen to a sermon and and we take communion. These are all religious things and they're beautiful. They're gifts of God to us. But see, the difference in the mind of a person who is truly just religious is the person that is using all of these good things as a law in order to get right or stay right with God. When instead it's supposed to be flowing from and through and because of a relationship you already have. You see the difference? Then these things are truly worship and they are true and undefiled religion. I'm going to have us close this morning and we're just going to close by looking at John chapter 15 one more time. Friends, can I tell you that in the context of Christianity, it can be very easy to forget Jesus, lose your focus on him. It's easy to do this. If you've not experienced that yourself, you can become a part of all these other things and you lose sight of the one you belong to now. You see, Paul was always dealing with two kinds of people. He, the lawless Christian from chapter 6 is like, oh, we're not in a law, all right, let's party. Or the legalistic Christian of chapter 7 who still thinks the law is the way. Neither one are right and neither one are in keeping with the gospel. You notice this illustration that Jesus gives? He's the vine. And so picture a vine now in your mind. We've all seen fruit vines. We know what that looks like. And the vine, of course, is the source of life and nutrients and fruit. We are the branches. And we need to be, teaches Jesus, we need to be connected to that vine, receiving from that vine the person of the risen Christ. Not a thing, the person Jesus, connected to him, abiding in him, trusting in him, looking to him so that from him, what happens? Fruit bearing, because he says, verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. No fruit's born apart from me. Apart from me, you're just a dead branch that gets tossed out, eventually raked up and thrown into the fire. So the key then to the Christian life is abiding in Jesus Christ. 
You know, I think it's a problem with some of us sometimes. We cease treating Jesus like a personal being. A personal, living being who is in you and you are in him. We open up our Bibles to read our Bibles and we're just doing it as, I'm just gonna do this, I'm gonna read the word. Instead of reading the Bible in a relational way, perhaps, I could just say, Lord, this is your word, this comes from you. Talk to me now through the Bible. You come into a worship service like it's just something you do, something external instead of coming into the service and treating the risen Christ as though he's real and he's here and he's in you and you're waiting to hear from him. Like there's expectation. I need to hear from Jesus this morning, you see. We cease to be relational in our relationship with Jesus Christ and we become law-based Christians. It's so easy to do that. I just want to encourage you this week, friends. Look to Jesus. Seek Jesus this week. Do the things that are going to foster that personal, warm, love-based relationship with Jesus so that you can bear fruit And friends, verse 11 of John 15, that his joy can be in you and that your joy can be full. One sure way to know that you've lost focus on Christ is you're joyless. And that's probably because you're focused on everything else. This is why Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3, man, Set your mind on things above and not things on the earth. Things above where Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Christ who is your life, by the way, he says that. We just sung it a few minutes ago. Get your minds on Jesus Christ. He is real. Do you know he's real? Do you know he's with you right now? Do you know he's in you right now? Do you know you are vitally, eternally, covenantally bound to him in a covenant that can never be broken, lost? You are his and he is yours. Friends, this is the key to bearing fruit in our lives and spiritual growth, seeing that we are Released from the law because of Jesus, praise God, but we are released from the law so that we can belong to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. This is your grace. Help us now see Jesus clearly, not just this morning, but throughout this week, and let us follow him and live for him. We pray that we would bear fruit for your glory through our connection to him. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.